0: On this 15th of uh, February, 2022, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. We have a lot of wonderful things available for you and opportunities to engage at myfaithradio.com. If you've never visited the website, invite you to do that today. Check it out. We're inviting you into our Kindness Always initiative right now. Uh, And so an opportunity, not just for us to, you know, engage in random acts of kindness or periodic acts of kindness, but actually intentionally engage um, in ways that demonstrate the beauty and the truth of the gospel to other people. So we just invite you into that today. All right, here are a couple of, well, frankly, freakish headlines um, to get us rolling this morning. Remember that Snakes on a Plane movie Paul Perot, do you remember that movie? I never I actually never saw it because yeah. I know because the whole idea just freaks me out, right? Well Not there a big was an air of snakes, no. Yeah, an Air Asia flight that had to be rerouted because, yes, in fact, real live snakes on the plane. But no Samuel <laughs> L. Jackson. I just gotta tell you, I'm just freaked yeah. out thinking about it. Okay. Um three hundred thousand jobs affected today after over the weekend the United States suspended avocado imports from Mexico. Mm-hmm. I bet you didn't even know that it happened over the weekend. Um, the United States shut down avocado imports from Mexico because uh, of threats made over cell phones to uh, U.S. officials who are responsible for um, Uh, examining those avocados and, uh, you know, uh, being sure that what comes into the United States is not only what it's supposed to be, but, you know, healthy for the peeps. So there you go. That's going on. Might be affecting your avocado toast this morning or I don't know. Maybe you were thinking of making something featuring avocados later in the week. Uh, Maybe rethink your menu plans. All right. We're going to have all kinds of updates from across the country and around the world as we enter into our conversations today. But um, I want to make sure that you are tracking with me in our reading of the Bible. We are reading through the book of Acts during the month of February. And so this being the 15th of February, we are in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And so this is the chapter where, if you've never read it before, like the church has its first council meeting. Maybe for you it would be a deacon's meeting. Maybe for other people it would be like a session meeting. This is the leadership meeting of the you know, the earliest version of the church. And there was a dispute. And so in order to resolve the dispute, they're going to get together, they're going to have a meeting. It's actually a great chapter um, to lift up and talk about how the church comes together in a consultative way, how the Holy Spirit uh, is sought in the council and conversation one with another, um, how different Leaders in the church, in this case Paul and Barnabas, um, Peter, James, each stand up and are heard, and they consult together with the other uh, elders and leaders in what's understood as the First Jerusalem Council. And so, it's a great, um, great conversation to have with others in leadership in your local congregation. If you've never done that, this is a wonderful opportunity to talk about, you know, how how do we talk together with one another about challenges that we face. It's also a really good reminder that, you know what, it's not easy being in mutual or shared leadership with other people, because guess what? People are still people. Yeah, even redeemed people in Jesus, still people, right? And we disagree about some things. And that's one of the reasons I appreciate uh, the way Luke brings the chapter to a conclusion, right? He talks about, you know, hey, you know, we got Paul and Barnabas, they've been together in ministry for a period of time, um, such a blessing, like both of them, such a blessing, such unique characters. And then they get to this place of disagreement with each other. And it's over whether or not John Mark um, is going to be included in this sort of second missionary journey of Paul. And um, ultimately what happens is, you know, Barnabas and John Mark go off in one direction. They sail away to Cyprus to extend the gospel And Paul takes, uh, at this point, Silas and departs as well. Um, And and they go through Syria and Cecilia, strengthening the churches. Good reminder that um, there are times that it's okay, it's okay to to go and do gospel-advancing ministry without someone that you've been uh, doing that with for some period of time. Like sometimes the church, in fact, the church always grows, it multiplies through division. We saw it in the earlier chapters of Acts where through persecution, you know, God actually sends all those people who had gathered together as the church in Jerusalem and he scattered them back out to places uh, across Asia Minor. And that's happening here as well. And so how, how is it that God intends to multiply the church through division? Now, this isn't division like, you know, the, the body of Christ is divided in some significant way. No, it's just about, you know, who's going to go which direction to do what right now. And so they're all kingdom advancing and they're all on a kingdom advancing agenda. They're just doing it in partnership with, you know, new teams, All right. So there you go. That's Acts chapter 15. Are you reading through the book of Acts with us? We'd love for you to join us in this Bible reading adventure. You can catch up and there's a daily podcast as well at myfaithradio.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge and we'll be right back with Nick Pitts and what's going on in Canada. joining us now he is a fellow at the institute for global engagement nick welcome back
2: why hello there carmen happy tuesday to you
0: happy happy tuesday happy um day after valentine's day for the first time that you had valentine's day as a married man i'm I'm hoping that you know you 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 showed up with some flowers man
2: flowers were exchanged food okay, was consumed good. it was it was a delightful day and also a reminder that it was the day after the super bowl <laughs> valentine's day and so it was not as productive a day at work as it needed to be but nevertheless <laughs> people felt celebrated and specifically my wife and
0: I was going to say them. really 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 not people in general anymore really just one person <laughs> so there you go <laughs> Um, so I would like to talk with you about what in the world is going on uh, across the northern border in, uh, in Canada. Not yet the time of year for tapping the maple trees um, for the flow of the maple syrup. But emergency powers, the, Emer- the Canadian Emergency Act has been instituted by the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, against the Freedom Convoy protest slash blockade. Want to bring people up to speed?
2: Yeah, so Emergency Act was, I believe, instituted for the first time in 1988. It it gives temporary but enormous power for the federal government to, again, try to free up upwards of 400 uh, trucks that are blockading certain border points as well as barriers in Ottawa and throughout Canada right now. We've known that this has been an issue for a time now, probably for the past two to three weeks. It's been gaining momentum for the past month. Um, Some say it's going to center around vaccine mandates specifically. So not vaccines, but vaccine mandates. About 80 to 90 percent of Canadians are already vaccinated. It's an even higher number for truckers. But what, what's being reported by Barry Weiss um, is found that it's not simply just the mandates that are being instituted around the vaccines, but really just the, the indifference that what she would uh, liken to elites, those in power towards um, citizens in general. And so this is their standing up right now to what, what would be considered the indifference.
0: Yeah, I think that um, some language that I've been uh, using over the weekend, because like you, I, I know that this is not just about vaccine mandates because many, many, many of these people are vaccinated. And so I think that it's the COVID-19 mitigation stuff that has just like gone on longer than um, than people think is necessary and prudent and that it is um, that the federal government seems to not understand just how different life is in different places for different people and um you know and national strategies which is what in many cases um is at issue here um You know, not everything has to be national like you can if something is an issue in, you know, in the center of your own city, then deal with it there. Uh, And so this isn't all politics is local and local politics has come home to roost in the Canadian national capital.
2: Yeah, I, you know, Carmen, in a non-shocking twist, I find myself disagreeing with pretty much um, a, a lot of the big takes that are being offered right now, because I think there's nuance that you've articulated very well. Um, one, I, uh, I want to find myself in the position of I don't want to valorize lawlessness. At the end of the day, if indivi- individuals should be free to protest, I think that's a beautiful God-given right To lift up your voice to lawlessness, whether it was the Egyptian midwives, whether it was Daniel Meshach and Abednego. I think that there's a richness that comes with protesting against unrighteousness. Um, and I don't want to take that away from individuals. However, there is a great difference between protesting and rioting when lawlessness begins to um, take root. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm a little bit uneasy. Just as what happened in 2020 with the protests that shook across the U.S., um, and, or whether it's relative to climate change and, 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 and violating and, and breaking into private property um, I, over certain fossil fuel industries, I am uneasy and I am no way endorsing that. And so I think it's beautiful to protest, but the lawlessness and the riots um, and the blocking of streets, I think, need to be handled. However, I think that the Canadian government, government uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, this is this creates a little bit of uneasiness in me that he's going to declare a national emergency over, quote unquote, safety measures right now. Um, I'm not willing to go so far as to say this is a soft totalitarianism, but I, I do think that there is an opportunity in a way to be able to deal with this um, that doesn't um require the federal government to declare an emergency order to be able to um, um mitigate the situation
0: yeah the, the time to go home is now is the um mm-hmm. is the is the language that um i think i would focus in on um for folks who are you know considering whether or not uh, the point has been made all right we got to yeah. take a very brief it, it, break when we oh go ahead
2: Oh no, and, and you're right on because uh, the research is very clear. When a protest turns into lawlessness, the message decreases in its power. And when the law, so the protests have raised a significant point, but now that there's a lawlessness element to it, there it's diminishing its power. And then you have to ask yourself: Is this beneficial moving forward?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and to the you know to the elites on the other side, you've lost the plot of the entire oh, exercise yeah. uh, if, uh, if, if you think that taking away individual freedoms and liberties at this point is the answer to um, whatever residual problems we have with COVID-19. So yeah, you, you've lost agree. the plot <laughs> completely. All right. So uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Nick Pitts in just a moment. I'm going to ask this question about artificial intelligence. Would it surprise you that artificial intelligence is already considered conscious and what does that even mean? We're going to talk about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Now, now We're continuing our conversation with Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. All right, Nick, this is actually a debate within the uh, the artificial intelligence uh, community. And so we're talking about the founder of OpenAI, uh, which is you know artificial intelligence that is also like crowdsourced and developed. i do not even going to try to um, pronounce the guy's name, but he is claiming, he's the co-founder of OpenAI, and he is claiming um, that it may actually be now conscious. And this is a not not have a conscience like know the difference between right and wrong but that artificial intelligence may have already developed a consciousness um what what's going on here
2: uh, yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Roboto. Magnus, um, not so fast, sticks. Um, these robots uh, <laughs> and AI <laughs> t- t- entities may be renegades <laughs> stealing our jobs <laughs> and stealing our humanity. Uh, never mind. Uh, that's way too much. I think that there's a couple of distinctions that we need to make as evangelicals and as Christians in particular. One, just affirming the image of God, peace, um, that the yeah. robots, um, um, we are we are made in the image of God and do not and um, robots are not made in the image of God they're crafted by human hands AI is a technology. Um, I think that's increasingly important for us to be able to see this distinction, despite the claims of consciousness that is arising um, within these robots. Um, but we're also seeing that it's a technology that's increasingly going to be disrupting our marketplace right now. There's new, there's research out by Cooper that indicates by 2030, as many as eight Hundred million jobs could be lost worldwide due to AI. 38% of jobs in the U.S. are at high risk of being replaced by AI over the next 15 years. McKinsey put out a report that indicated that upwards of one third of workers could see their jobs disrupted within the next twelve years. Whether we like it or not, um, the the robot is out of the box. AI is beginning to be a growing, uh, a growing contingent, not only in entertaining us through metaverse as well as through various other technological entities, but it's also going to have to be a, a growing part of how we do our job, and make our ends meet for our families. And so this is something that we need to grapple with now as this technology is beginning to innovate and evolve ever so
0: quickly. When we think of being um, conscious, like, right, the difference between conscious and unconscious, I think that for me, you know, when when I would consider Um, you know, this laptop computer sitting in front of me right now, it's not, it does not have a conscious awareness. It is a thing. um, And it is only doing what I tell it to do. But when it starts listening to me and anticipating my thoughts, desires, needs, you know, because of my past behavior and what it anticipates, because it thinks it knows me, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about AI moving to the place where, human input is less and less and less required, where AI um, is anticipating so much that it is literally moving forward on its own in terms of product development or distribution or um, you know, anticipating like if it sees a hurricane on the radar, it starts actually advancing um, supplies in those directions Without a human being saying, Hey, we're going to need water and blue tarps and chainsaws over here, you know, in Louisiana, cause there's a hurricane coming up the Gulf. Um, so I think that's what we're talking about and, um, and need to recognize and anticipate. There are lots of human jobs that actually artificial intelligence can anticipate its way past. Mm-hmm. Am I, am I kind of getting it?
2: Yeah, the ERLC has a great um, explainer on artificial intelligence, and they put out a, a, a kind of a, a series of articles. And I really do I, I resonate with and I really do think uh, Article 3 really relates here. It says that we affirm the use of AI to inform and aid human reasoning and moral decision making and deny that humans can or should cede our moral accountability or responsibilities to any form of AI that will ever be created. There's a responsibility that was placed upon us all the way back in Genesis to cultivate this world, including um, artificial intelligence that was not yet um, in existence, but was something to come. We know that AI is going to be extremely um, uh, profitable. Um, It's going to be extremely beneficial. We're seeing it already um, in medical procedures. We're seeing it right now um, with firefighters as they continue to fight fires more effectively and safely. AI is a great aid for us right now. But I think we need to consider whether it would be prudential In certain areas, and we just need to start coming up with ethical frameworks for how we can use it before it begins to um, just take over us and and begin to equate uh, all types of innovation with profitability, which I don't think Mm. is um, morally sound.
0: Uh, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. Um, as always, Nick, thank you so very much um, for joining us. Um, I think that next time we talk, I'm going to want I'm going to want to have a conversation about deep fakes because I think we're getting to the place where we literally can't tell the difference, um, and we don't know what we're looking at on the screen, whether or not that's an actual person talking about something, or whether or not that is a computer gem- generated or aggregated. Um, image of a person we think we recognize, but in fact, it's not really them. And I I think that for Christians, once we get to the place where we can't trust our eyes. um, Yeah, yeah, I just so anyway, so can we can you put that in your pocket and be thinking about it between now and then?
2: Oh, I am all for um, the idea of, of concern. I love laughing at my deep fakes when I, somebody puts my face on a dancing elf at the right. holiday season. I am not for the deep fake that would perpetuate lies in the face of some image that's not really me saying a message that I wouldn't agree with.
0: Exactly. All right, Nick, as always, thank you so much for being here. You are irreplaceable by AI thanks be to God. There you go. (laughs) That was the (laughs) irreplaceable Nick Pitts, live and in person. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and we'll be right back. We think about your devotional life and the ways in which you are um, preparing yourself for the day. I hope you are in the Word of God today. I didn't know that story about Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, I think that was the very first devotional that my mom gave me when I was a teenager, um, and so in terms of something that I used day to day for a fairly long period of time. It's it's beautiful. It's such a gift. Um, maybe you're using a devotional today that you want to share with me. I'd love to hear from you. You can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. For those of you uh, just joining us, maybe in Rapid City, South Dakota, or acro- across the Um, uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota. Um, Welcome. You're listening to Faith Radio. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. We take the headline news of the day. We apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day uh, with the goal of walking our faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. That's what we are seeking to do here each and every day. So thank you so much for including us in your day. We're going to turn our attention to what in the world is going on in the world. Dr. Paul Miller from Georgetown University joins us next, and we're going to talk about Russia and Ukraine. The world is the Lord's and everything in it, and so turning our attention as evangelical Christians to what in the world is going on in the world is something that we do on a regular basis here on Mornings with Carmen. Today, we have Dr. Paul D. Miller from Georgetown University to walk around the world with us and help us understand from a Christian worldview what is happening. Paul, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Absolutely. So um, let's lead off with Russia and Ukraine. I know that the United States has moved its Ukrainian embassy operations from Kyiv to a city in the western part of Ukraine that I won't try to pronounce because it has too many um, consonants and only one vowel. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes, uh, that's right. Amidst continuing fears that Russia has all the pieces in place to invade Ukraine, uh, the United States has evacuated its embassy. Um, We don't really know what's going to happen in the next few days. The the question is, will Russia invade or won't it? And and the answer is, no one knows, and Vladimir Putin himself may not know. He has created the opportunity for himself, and perhaps he's waiting to see how he responds and how the region responds to what he's done. Um, Even if he climbs down now, and and the headline today is that he apparently has ordered a small number of ground troops to, uh, to, to pull back, um, even if he climbs down now, recognize what he has done. He's given himself leverage for the next time. right? In a couple years, if I was him, you know, 18 to 24 months, he could call up uh, President Biden or the new German Chancellor, and he could say, hey, look, remember the headache I caused you? You want me to do that again? If not, you better sit down on the negotiating table with me today. Otherwise, I'm going to ratchet the pressure back up. So he's created that opportunity for himself and given himself future negotiating leverage by what he's done today.
0: Paul, when you look around the world and you look at the relationship that Putin has developed with Xi Jinping in in China, and the relationship between Russia and Iran and Iran and China, um, do you do you see do you see something there um, that we should be paying attention to?
1: Absolutely, I think President Biden was right when he said in December that. Um, The rise of authoritarianism is the, is the principal challenge of our time. Uh, I just wish he would do more about it. Um, I wrote in, in one of my books almost seven years ago that uh, the top priority of American foreign policy should be to prevent a Russian-Chinese alliance. If you have two hostile nuclear-armed great powers who control the predominance of Eurasia, that's a major threat to the world, to our prosperity, our way of life, our allies, our freedom, to everything. We essentially fought World War II to prevent such a thing from happening, and now with the friendship growing between Russia and China, I'm pretty concerned about their ability to change the kind of world we live in.
0: You use the term Eurasia. Um, I am mindful that Russia is both in Europe and Asia, or it is both European and Asian. Can you can you remind us from a historical perspective when we're talking about Russia? kind of worldview are we talking about? Um, Because I I think that many people in the West just assume that everyone shares our value system. And that's not true when we're talking about Russia.
1: Um, Yeah. So uh, Anne Applebaum wrote a a great article in The Atlantic just a day or two ago. And she's been, um, uh, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who's written books on Russia and Eastern Europe for decades. And her argument about Russia was uh, along these lines. And I, I wish I could quote you exactly. But she says, the problem with Western diplomats is that when we sit down across the table from Russian diplomats, and I think you could probably apply this to Chinese diplomats as well, the Western diplomats tend to believe that we live in a world where rules matter, where promises are kept, where norms mean something, where values count. And the Russian diplomats by and large don't believe that. And it, and it introduces a difficulty, a disadvantage for Western diplomats, when we act like rules matter and the Russians don't. We can, we can act that way amongst each other, amongst the democratic alliance in Europe and East Asia and elsewhere, but it just doesn't count when you're sitting across the table from the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans. Uh, it's a different kind of world. And the question we have to ask is, what kind of world do we want to live in? If we want to live in our kind of world, we do have to adopt different tactics when we're facing down the bullies on the other side of the table.
0: We're talking with Dr. Paul D. Miller from Georgetown University. He also works with Providence Magazine, which you guys will recognize because we frequently talk to Luke Moon here um, about what in the world is going on in the world. Paul, let's, um, let's pivot more fully toward China. What can you tell us Um, you know, about not just the relationship between Russia and what's happening in Ukraine, but maybe China and Taiwan as a parallel concern?
1: Some commentators have suggested that China is watching how we respond to the crisis in Ukraine and using that as a gauge uh, to figure out how we would respond to a similar crisis in Taiwan. I think there's something to that, although let's remember all politics is local, and what happens between China and Taiwan will mostly be determined by uh, by what happens in in South and East Asia. Um, so yes, I do think that our, our sort of our credibility matters, our reputation matters, but it's not the single most determinative feature. The situation with, with Taiwan is really complicated by uh, history, uh, and if you want me, I can I can recap the long history here. Um, but I think that we should do everything in our power to help preserve both Taiwan and and U- Ukraine's sort of independence, even though Taiwan is not recognized as an independent country, to, to help them, short of going to war, we should do everything in our power to help them should a crisis emerge.
0: I mean, you know, I have a history professor um, here with me who knows the history well. So, yes, I feel like a um, a review of the history between China and Taiwan. I, I always think that's helpful because, you know, Paul— most of us are not paying the kind of attention to these situations and and then it pops in the news and we're like oh taiwan i feel like i should know more about that so yeah let's review the history
1: yeah so it's helpful to remember that um, the united states was an ally with uh, china in world war ii the government of china at the time they called themselves the republic of china um, was on our side and helped fight against imperial japan However, they were also caught in the middle of their own civil war, and they lost. So the people, the Chinese who were our allies, they fled mainland China and took up residence in Taiwan, and they became the government of Taiwan. And so we've had this long-standing alliance dating to World War II with what became the government of Taiwan. We signed a couple of treaties with them, and they were binding in force for a couple of decades. We recognized them as the government of all China up until 1979. When we did switch our recognition uh, to China, and that was uh, about Cold War politics, uh, we abrogated the treaties, but Congress passed a law saying that we have to uh, uh, designate Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. So that's where it is right now. We still uh, recognize them as a major non-NATO ally. We don't recognize them as the government of all China. We don't actually recognize them as an independent country. But we have been selling them lots of weapons for 40 years, and we've— uh we, we've given some somewhat ambiguous pledges that we will help pr- prevent uh, the dispute from becoming a, a military dispute. Uh, I think the phrase is we, we we agree there is one China, but that the territorial dispute should be resolved peacefully.
0: OK. And so that's where I'll just tell you, like as the casual observer who's not a historian, um, that's where when you say those things, I say to myself, OK, that feels a little bit like the relationship that the United States has with Ukraine in that we established these diplomatic relationships with this country after the Soviet Union collapsed. And we made all kinds of promises to them, especially in relationship to their relinquishing nuclear weapons. Um, and so do you so can you see how from like the casual viewpoint there there does feel like this parallel between Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan, even if from your perspective, they're not necessary, is not quite that clean.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I that's absolutely true. There's a there's a surface similarity there. And here's the most important point of the similarity. In neither case do we have a binding formal mutual defense treaty. (laughs) Ukraine, We do not have a treaty with Ukraine. And uh, Taiwan, uh, again, we abrogated our formal treaties with them back in 1979. However, in both cases, we kind of sort of treat them like allies. Um, In the case of Ukraine, NATO has promised that it will someday in the future become a member, which gets it pretty close to the line of being a treaty ally. And again, in Taiwan, we, we designated a major non NATO ally. And so it, they exist in this kind of gray area of not quite formal, full treaty allies, but pretty close to it. And you have to ask yourself, uh, if, it, if push comes to shove, is this where we will throw down and risk World War Three to fight for their independence? I absolutely think we should throw down and risk that if it comes to a formal treaty ally. So that means all of the rest of Europe, NATO members, we absolutely have to defend them at all costs, because if NATO collapses, you know you don't want to live in that world. And the same is true with Japan and South Korea, uh, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, we all have treaties with them. I think it is more ambiguous with Ukraine and with Taiwan. Uh, to, to be very frank, I kind of don't want to answer that question until we arrive at that crisis point. Uh, uh-huh. We don't want to predict what the world will look like. And it, it's, it's tricky to say what it will look like.
0: We're talking with Dr. Paul David Miller. You can find him at pauldavidmiller.com. He teaches at Georgetown University. He also um, helps with a project called Providence Magazine, which is the intersection of the Christian faith and international um, geopolitical concerns. So I'm always inviting you guys to check that out. We're gonna um, we're gonna continue our conversation um, with Dr. Miller here in just a moment. We're gonna pivot toward Iran. Um, I'm also going to ask him. Um, about this this conversation about whether or not Israel is an apartheid state and whether or not that language is um, unnecessarily inflammatory in terms of the global conversation today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge and we'll be right back
2: just me like a lamp for the slaughter.
0: continuing our conversation with Dr. Paul David Miller at Georgetown University. You can connect with him at pauldavidmiller.com. Uh Paul, let's uh let's talk about Iran, um concerns that you might have there uh in it just in terms well, you can give us an overview. You can talk about Iran in whatever way you want. How's that sound?
1: Yeah, so um Listeners may remember that the Obama administration signed an agreement with Iran back in 2015 trying to, Obama said, trying to limit its uh, ability to build nuclear weapons. And uh, Iran was quite happy to sign that agreement um, because, in my view, it allowed them to do everything up to the line of building nuclear weapons. It preserved their nuclear breakout capability. President Trump pulled out of that deal in 2018. President Biden wants to get back into it. And they've been talking with the Iranians. The Iranians seem interested uh, because they want to escape some of the sanctions that they've been under. Uh, and again, I think the Iranians recognize that any deal that we sign with them uh, under the terms that President Biden is considering doesn't do a whole lot to limit their uh, their activity. Um, it allows them to preserve their, their, their infrastructure, their know-how, their technology, um, and to carry out uh, some of the... Um, pre- uh, uh, some of the steps you need to take before you actually get to a bomb, right? There's lots and lots of steps and they can do say eight out of 10 of those steps under the deal with no sanctions. Um, And so I think it's a bad deal. Uh, I would not like to see us uh, get back into the nuclear deal with Iran. I think the deal essentially codifies their breakout capability and would make the world less safe.
0: Amnesty International um, has declared in a several hundred-page study, that Israel is an apartheid state. Like, that's the language um, that they're using. Can you remind us where the word apartheid is, uh, you know, how we understand that, where it has been applied in the past, um, and then just assess this claim that Israel and the date they give here is at its inception in 1948— Uh, that Israel is, has always been, an apartheid state.
1: Well, the word apartheid comes from South Africa. Uh, The South African regime prior to 1994 um, was run by a small minority of white South Africans who uh, exercised almost totalitarian control over the majority black population. Um, It was a evil regime and it was justly brought down peacefully by the African National Congress. Uh, and we can all celebrate that. Is Israel's treatment of the Palestinians akin to the white South Africans' treatment of of black South Africans? No, I don't. I don't think so. And I want to say at the out front, there are uh, we we can scrutinize Israel's treatment of its population and the Palestinians. That's fair game. But I think that there's really not a fair comparison to South Africa um, today in 2022, and, and indeed for all of Israel's history every citizen of Israel shares equal citizenship rights. That's Israeli Jews, it's Palestinian Arabs, Muslims, and Christians share equal citizenship rights within Israel. Um, There are elected members of the Israeli Neset who are Arab Palestinians, Muslims, and Christians, uh, and they enjoy the same freedoms as the rest of Israelis. Um, uh, there's There's a difference then in how Israel has treated the Arab Palestinians who live in the West Bank, and who live in Gaza, which have never been formally incorporated into Israel. And again, I think uh, we can scrutinize that. However, let's recognize in 2022, that Israel um, has withdrawn from the West Bank starting in 2005, withdrawn from Gaza, uh, uh, maybe I got that wrong, West Bank in 1995, and withdrawn from Gaza starting in 2005. And so today, Israel has essentially no or very little Control over what happens in those territories Israel's not governing the West Bank Israel's not governing Gaza. those territories are almost entirely under the uh, authority and leadership of Palestinian leaders through the Palestinian authority the pa and whatever hardships whatever uh, tyranny that they live under is is Palestinian tyranny um, and again I want to say that that that's you know, we can have a different conversation about history about Israel's occupation post sixty seven, but today recognize that Israel has almost entirely taken itself out of governing those territories.
0: I think it's um it's helpful for us to you know remember why Israel was um, formed post World War two why um, and how it was formed, and I I just think that it's helpful for you know, people to be reminded that it was formed out of a U.N. resolution. I mean, it's it's chartered by the United Nations. Like, it's not as if a group of Jews went and drove people off their land so that they could have a place to live. Nobody wanted them. Like, I I think at some point, Paul, we have to acknowledge that after World War II, nobody wanted these people. And until we recognize that and admit that, we can't have an honest conversation about what's happening now.
1: Yeah, and thank you for the reminder. Yes, Israel was formed by by the United Nations in a Security Council resolution. The first two to recognize Israel was the United States and the Soviet Union. There was there was a strong consensus that um, this was the right time and the right place and the right move to make. And I want to add, the very same UN resolution also um, created or at least offered to create the state of Palestine. Um, there's always been on the table the the understanding that there should be a, sort of a two-state solution here. The United Nations and all of the parties that assented to that original agreement recognize that uh, Palestinian Arabs um, could or should also have their own state. The party that rejected that um, was itself the, the the Arab states and the, and the Palestinians, because accepting that also meant accepting Israel in the same agreement, and they did not want to do that. Um, there could have been a Palestinian state at any time from 1947 to 1967. Those territories were occupied by Egypt and by um, Jordan, and they never moved to create a state of Palestine. It's a different story from 67 to about 94, 95. But again, today, it is in the hands of the Palestinians uh, to govern their own territories. Um, and Israel no longer exercises control over those territories. And I think, in my view, yes. We should move towards a two-state solution, but one that recognizes the full rights and equality of the state of Israel, which has every right to exist and defend itself.
0: If you're listening right now, you're probably not going to hear much about this Amnesty International declaration that Israel is an apartheid state. But trust me when I tell you, uh, people across Europe are talking about it. And, uh, and, and the EU is probably the primary target uh, or audience of this um, Amnesty International report. And I just thought that our listeners needed to be aware that this conversation is happening globally as well. As Christians, we are certainly concerned about uh, Jews as we are engrafted into them um, as the children of God and those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Paul, as always, thank you so much for um, looking with us at what is happening in the world. Appreciate what you are doing each and every day, both at Georgetown and, and at Providence Magazine. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Absolutely. You can, uh, you can check in with Dr. Miller at pauldavidmiller.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. Thank you for those of you who've checked in on your favorite devos. Let's see. We've got uh, we've got some friends out here who are reading Bonhoeffer's Life Together in a devotional form. Um, we've got Lainey checking in with some newer devos here. That looks like Open Doors from Rick Warren and The Wonder of Creation by Louis Giglio. And let me just tell you, the artwork on the cover of that one just draws me in immediately. Love both those guys. Uh, Streams in the Desert, Mary says, was my first devotional and currently and frequently reading and rereading Jesus Calling. So many good resources available. Yes, indeed, so many good resources. And then um, someone checking in and saying, hey, I hear typing in the background. Okay, so here's the deal. I can only type and answer you on the text line if I type. And so I don't know how not to type and yet answer you on the text line. So my apologies that you heard me typing in the background. That would have been me. All right. Did you get the valentine that God sent? Did you get the bouquet of flowers? And you're saying to yourself, I didn't get any flowers yesterday. Okay. Well, then look around because maybe there are little crocus popping up their little heads somewhere, or maybe there's a planter of flowers or a bouquet on a table or in a window Uh, that you're passing by, all of those, every single one of them, gifts of God, every single one of them. Look at the buds that are getting all fat at the ends of the branches of the trees. I know they haven't popped out yet, but that's the promise of a bouquet that God is sending. Don't miss anything that God sends in terms of his love. And certainly, certainly don't miss the love of God sent in the person of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him, would never perish but have everlasting life. Did you get the Valentine that God sent today? John three sixteen helps remind us that God is love and has sent his son, that we might know his love for us. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. You're listening to Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.